And so software has these two effects. One is it lowers the cost of creating dramatic change. It increases the number of people who can try something new and create dramatic change. And it builds on itself, which is to say every now and again, someone takes a piece of software and launches it. And it turns out to be so fundamental that other people build on top of it. This is Sachin. And this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary, kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on Twitter at luminaryfm. We would love to hear from you. Why are technology and software an integral part of change and shaping the world around us? We seek to dissect this question in the second season of Luminary. It's arguably at the heart of defining our trajectory as a civilization. Through a vast series of topics, our ambition is to weave a narrative incorporating a social, technical, historical, and philosophical lens, with contributions from titans of technology, theorists, builders, and tinkerers alike. If you have ideas, feedback, or simply suggestions for who to talk with, drop us a line on Twitter. The spirit of this journey is collaborative and community-oriented. Our guest today is Clay Shirky, Vice Provost of Educational Technologies at New York University and an Associate Professor at the New York University Tisch School of Arts. He's a prominent thinker on the social and economic effects of the internet and the web. Clay has authored a number of books, including Here Comes Everybody and Cognitive Surplus. Our conversation with Clay gravitates around models of value generation in the context of digital technologies and the impact of AI on education. We talk about the social and economic impact of digital technologies, the nature of the internet, and why distributed version control is a new and important form of arguing. We also touch on how the university model of education might co-evolve with the growth of digital technology. Well, Clay, welcome. Thank you for coming on. It's such an honor to have you with us. For those who study your work, it's easy to tell that you come at problems from a very interdisciplinary lens. You approach the problem from many different angles. And though you write a lot about and study technology a lot, you never forget seemingly the sort of the human aspect of these systems. Because ultimately, they're produced right. by humans and humans participate in them. So just really curious as a starting point to hear what inspired you to study kind of the intersection of human nature and digital technology. So I was one of the first people to luck into heavy internet use from a sort of humanities background. I moved to New York in the middle of the 80s to go into the theater. And I was a theater designer and then started my own theater company. And that company staged nonfiction documents. We would do research on some topic and then create these theatrical collages. So I was spending a lot of time in the library in the early 90s and complained to my mother about having to wait for materials to come from closed stacks. My mother's a reference librarian. And she said, oh, you should, you should look at this thing we've been learning about in the library. It's called the internet. I'm like, okay, Ma, I'll check it out. And so I came to the internet with the idea that I was going to use it as a tool for creating theater pieces. And my mother's conception of it was that it was a badly formatted library. And it 
and when I got there, this was just pre-web. This is the days when you had to explain to people that the internet was not just Usenet, which no one now remembers, but with this global collection of bulletin boards, it was by far the most active set of communities online. And because I wasn't expecting the right things, right? I was thinking it was a tool. My mother was thinking it was a library. When I actually hit the sort of communal aspects of the internet, it came as a big surprise to me. It didn't fit any of my preconceived notions. And so the human element of it became the thing that was in a way most interesting to me. Spent a lot of time on alt culture, Usenet and alt culture, internet discussion groups. We were all getting our arms around the themes of network communication. And when the web launched into the public, and I had started using it when it was still just text only, the command line www version of the web, and you would connect to the next box underneath Kim Berners-Lee's desk in Switzerland, like the web had a sort of root computer in those days. The web really did live up to, in its early days, the idea that it's just information transfer, because that's what it was designed to do. And so there was this sense of like, either a brochure, as it were, producing information, or everybody's working on the transactional piece, the, the e-commerce piece. But when the web started to sort of reconstitute culture, when web BBSs started to show up, Wiki, first wikis launched and Wikipedia launches and so on, I had this sense in the late 90s and early 2000s, like, I remember this. I remember this from Usenet and mailing lists and moos and moos and muds and mushes and mucks and all of the kind of odd social spaces. IRC was the, another big another big piece of the early internet. And I thought, this social stuff is coming back. Like, I remember when the internet was primarily social and there was this kind of five-year pause for the web and now it's back. And I just joined NYU. I just joined a program called the Interactive Telecommunications Program at NYU. It's an arts and engineering program. And one of my brilliant graduate students, Jessica Hammer, was also interested in this stuff. And she and I put together a conference in 2002. Conference is actually a fancy word for it. We got a room for two days and we just invited a whole bunch of people in and just hashed out what we thought the social possibilities of this space were. And at the end of that period, I guess that was the fall of 2002, I left thinking, all right, this is it. Like, this is what I'm working on now. We just got lucky because we just happened to have people in the room who were excited about it enough that the fact that it wasn't yet widespread and didn't seem to be terribly powerful wasn't wasn't enough to convince us that it wasn't going to be important. And I then spent the next, basically the rest of the decade trying to nail down what was a big deal about what was a big deal about the social aspects of the internet. The two books, Here Comes Everybody and then Cognitive Surplus at the end of that decade were the kind of the end of that phase of work. So I guess that's a long way of answering your question, which is to say the human part of it is what I'd started with. And when it went away, I was better primed to recognize it when it came back. When people who joined the web in the middle of the 90s saw mainly coming soon animated GIFs and simple e-commerce, it was hard to believe that that was going to become a rich social space. But if you'd known how social the web had, or how social rather the internet had been before the web, you could imagine that reemerging more easily. And that was what happened. Yeah. Wonderful story about your mom. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that is very unique. And I think this transitions really well into the models of value generation, if you will, when it comes to right. digital technologies. And you've written quite a bit around this topic. One of the specific 
models we could start with is cognitive surplus, which right. is what you've written about. Love right. to learn about how you think about the models of value generation. Yeah. So funnily enough, cognitive surplus was a shorter book than Here Comes Everybody. And the way I think about Here Comes Everybody came out in 2008, cognitive surplus in 2010. And in a way, they are, how did we get here and what's next? If you had to put a kind of label on them, the 2008 book was really, where is all this social coordination stuff coming from and what does it mean? And cognitive surplus was, where might it go? And the core observation of cognitive surplus, is, as you say, so it's a theory of value, is that if you have very large aggregates of anything, and in this case of mental capacity, then you can create a different kind of value than you can when you have to have small, basically expensive human groups. And by expensive, I don't just mean costly, but also heavy coordination costs, significant amount of time and so on. And the idea for cognitive surplus came from a talk I gave in 2005, where I was trying to explain the sort of central question of the talk was, where did all the photos of the mermaid parade in Coney Island come from? Every year there is a, a late spring parade in Coney Island, kind of the beginning of the beach season called the Mermaid Parade. People dress up in costume and march around Coney Island and so on. And with the rise of Flickr, all of a sudden, there was a huge amount of documentation of the Mermaid Parade. And what was interesting to me is professional organizations could, of course, have said, let's dispatch 30 or 50 photographers and take pictures of everything. But there's no way they could have recouped the cost. That taking the photographs is absolutely already the purview of professional photojournalist organizations, but they can only take photographs they could pay for. And with the rise of point and shoot and camera phones and Flickr, it suddenly became possible to have a massive aggregate of amateur photos that was a thousand times larger than anything a professional organization could justify producing. And it was interesting to me that absence of a business model actually allowed the creation of a value that the presence of a business model prevented. And it was analogous to the same intuition about the internet itself, which is instead of having a blockbuster and a newspaper delivery service and a bookstore, and each media had its own mode of delivery, the internet was shared infrastructure that everybody paid for and then everybody got to use for any medium they could think of. Flickr took that same idea and said, if we have a platform for sharing photos, then we don't need to make a distinction between here's a photo of a birthday party and here's a photo of a major world event. This was being hotly debated at the time, this idea of the sort of amateur versus professional thing. The thing that I think settled it was when there was a plane that took off from LaGuardia, hit two birds, one in each engine and lost control. It basically turned the plane into a glider. And it had to turn and land in the East River where everybody got out and stood on the wing. And all of the photos of that event were from people's camera phones. No photojournalist could get to the scene before the plane sank. And yet those photos were some of the most astonishing photos produced that week, maybe that month, rocketed everywhere. News organizations were suddenly in the business trying to figure out how to license pictures that had been taken from camera phones and so on. And that became a kind of test case for this idea of cognitive surplus in general, which is if making something available to amateurs increases the scale so much that you have a filtering problem rather than a production problem, what does that look like in other domains? So I started looking at open source projects and quickly discovered that just right off the top, half of open source projects 
this is about 15 years ago when I did this work, about half of the open source projects available on the largest hosting platform had failed. One user, zero downloads ever, not even gotten off the ground. And then up to about the 75th percentile, there was almost no activity whatsoever. But at the other end of the scale, Linux, the Apache server, world-transforming projects that very quickly became sort of ubiquitous in their category. I mean, Linux now, despite all the naysaying, has become the most important operating system in the world. What you could see in that domain was that by making the process transparent and the switching costs low, what open source did is it didn't lower the likelihood of failure, it lowered the cost of failure. And that has proven to be really hard for institutions to adopt because institutions tend to be risk averse. That's what institutions are good at. Whereas open source is risk embracing. It's just, you know, try it, put up a project or commit to a project. And then look, if it isn't working, you'll see it and you can see what else is working and you can just switch from one thing to the other. And there are all of these stories of sort of people working on the MSQL database and then moving to the MySQL database because it just became obvious in a matter of months rather than years, as it would have been with commercial products, which one was gaining more traction. And so the book Cognitive Surplus is an attempt to generalize that theory of value and say, where are there places where open production, and this is following Yokai Benkler's incredible work on what he called the penguin and the Leviathan, comparing Linux production to other forms of production. Where are there places where aggregate human effort in hugely uneven ways, right? The most active participant in any given open source project is sometimes a thousand times more active than the least active person. Again, it would never work if you're trying to work in a workplace to have somebody for every thousand hours they clocked in, the other person clocked in one. But in open source, right, you can aggregate all of that value. And that kind of value production, you see it everywhere now, every place that there's an aggregate service. You see it in all the Stack Overflow sites. You see it in Reddit, you see it in Quora, you see it in many discords. The existence of GitHub, I think, is the great victory there. Somebody looked at Git and said, this is about connecting source code, but it's missing the layer that connects programmers. And the fact that GitHub and Git are indistinguishable in people's minds now for someone who joins the ecosystem today, they don't understand Git as an underlying tool that's separate from the GitHub communal wrapper, says how much value there is still in looking at the social component of any information ecosystem and thinking, how can we make this more valuable to the users so that they can make it more valuable to each other? It spoke about two things. One is cost of experimentation has been reduced. Right. Uh, second is coordination has improved tremendously, right. which leads to the formulation of these technologies. What else? Where else the value is getting generated from your vantage point? You know, there is so much value in putting ideas out in partially formed ways to critique them. This is Ward Cunningham's great observation. And the inventor of the wiki has said that the way to get the right answer on the internet is not to ask a question, it's to post the wrong answer. And I think this is underappreciated and it's going to be, as an aside, a big part of the chat GPT revolution or whatever you want to label the current spread of generative AI. It is much easier both cognitively and practically to edit than to create, right? It is much easier to see something, how something could be improved than to say, starting from zero, I can get to the kind of first paragraph, first image, first diagram, whatever it is. I think we're seeing that now express itself in the large language models, generative image, the diffusion models, and so on in machine learning. 
the ability to say, I'm going to circulate an idea that is partially formed and other people are going to correct it. And some of this obviously ties into the cognitive surplus idea, but it also has to do with a very particular human ability, which is I can look at something and see how to improve it, even if I couldn't have gotten it started. There are many examples on in the early days of 3D modeling and, and 3D printers, right? Trying to bridge the gap between STL files and an object in the real world. There came a tradition of, I was trying to do something with a 3D printer. Here's how far I got, but I couldn't figure out how to do this part or to make this joint work in a 3D printer and so on. And people would often come in and correct those errors or not even errors, those gaps in the desired goal. And when you wanted to know who created the object, it became impossible to say because the person who gotten it started their contribution did not get it all the way to the end, but their characterization of what was wrong with it did. And this goes back to something Eric Raymond said, God, decades ago in Cathedral in the Bazaar, the first real attempt to wrestle with what we came to call open source, given enough eyes, all bugs are shallow, which is to say the broad observation of these systems, sometimes the aggregate makes a difference as with the Flickr story from earlier, but sometimes it's one individual person has an intuition about how to fix or improve something that you couldn't have found in any other way. There was just something running around. I forget which Mastodon instance it was, but somebody said, basically, I have two Stack Overflow accounts so that I post a question I have. And then acting as another user, I immediately go in and post a wrong answer. And then people rush in to correct it. If I just ask the question, sometimes it sits there. But if I ask the question and then confidently give a wrong answer, somebody will come in to correct. And that kind of visibility and interaction, again, when you can do it at global scale, it's a different kind of value creation than you can do without a network like this underlying the, the ability to aggregate people and intuitions. If you would kind of synthesize and distill what software enables that wasn't previously possible, how would you formulate that? I mean, it's, it's hard because it's a long list. The internet really is a lightning strike. The most compressed version of it, what I've said is the internet is for moving data from point A to point B for all conceivable values of A, data, and B. And as Scott Bradner up at Harvard put it many, many years ago, the internet means not having to ask permission. So you don't need permission from the people who run the center of the network to try a new idea. And that meta change, which is to say, it's just a computing device. It's not a phone optimized for a particular set of frequencies of audio. It's not broadcast media for television. It's not point to point for conversation. It's any of those patterns you like, as long as you're willing to specify it in software, that means that the main thing about internet media is there is no main thing. If you look at Signal and you look at TikTok, there's very, very little that's the same about those tools, but they can happily coexist on the same network. And I think that that, there was a vogue for a while in writing about the internet, certainly in the 90s and early 2000s, in explaining TCP IP and how the underlying packet switching works and blah, blah, blah. It was back in the days when you kind of had, a, the thought was you were going to have to be a geek to know how the internet worked, the way you used to have to be to use a Windows computer or whatever. All of that fell away. People stopped explaining the internet. 
and that's mostly good. Mostly people don't need to know how TCP works. But I do think that one of the things lost is appreciating that the underlying network is the thing that underwrites all of these surface changes that we're seeing. The flexibility and the permissionlessness of new software launches. Okay. So it's really the permissionless nature you're saying of, of software-enabled systems like the internet that makes it so powerful. Yeah, but I would say not like the internet, just the internet itself, which is to say there's yes, not okay. a large class of things that have that permissionless characteristic. <laughs> I was working with a bunch of people who were in or adjacent to the music industry in the early 2000s. And I'd been writing about Napster, which was at the time the fastest growing piece of software in history. I think ChatGPT, in fact, just lapped it. But Napster for a long time was the fastest growing piece of software in history. And the music industry people were sitting around telling each other, like, this is an annoyance, but, you know, we got this. This is whatever. This, these are a couple of kids, the people who've written Napster. How serious could it be? Because they couldn't imagine that a pair of, like, what were Sean and Sean, like teenagers or early 20s? I don't even know. Young. Couldn't imagine right. that a couple of kids could actually just upend the recording industry. And I remember thinking at the time and said to the ones I trusted, not to everybody, all they've done is taken internet logic and applied it to music. But most of what you're fighting against is not Sean Fanning. Most of what you're fighting against is the internet. The recording industry has just gone away. When was the last time you paid to own a piece of music? Right? And you can argue about whether streaming is better or worse than what we have, but you can't argue that the thing that Napster kicked off really just got rid of the idea of, first of all, buying physical media at all, but then buying MP3s or any of the rest of it. The inability of the music industry people to imagine that what they were fighting <laughs> with was an infrastructure rather than people was characteristic of the lack of imagination I've seen in almost all of the legacy media that has, or legacy businesses that have not done well in this environment, right? The newspaper people just for years, in some cases, even now, they regarded the money advertisers used to give them as being owned by the newspapers and regarded Facebook as stealing their money or what have you. It was a very odd dynamic as if advertisers were meant to be a captive audience. And they right. were almost incapable of imagining that someone was giving the advertisers better service than they, the newspapers, had previously done. And they just sleepwalked into quarter after quarter of consecutive revenue decline over the space of, I guess, going on 20 years now. <laughs> and that, I think, if anything, has astonished me most, come to think of it, just this January, I passed the 30 years as an internet user, Mark. If anything has astonished me most in those 30 years, it's that we could be at this late date and still have people in industries affected by the internet who don't understand the nature of the threat. It's truly baffling. Actually, this is sort of a great segue into the next part here, which is kind of a post-mortem, if you will. Because you've been so incisive, really, your ideas have been so prescient, and you're writing so incisive, I think let's do a little bit of post-mortem. So mm -hmm. compared to what you expected, let's say, 15, 20 years ago, what areas of economic and social life have been more or less impacted by digital technology? Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. What has surprised you? Almost nothing has been less impacted. I will say in, in Here Comes Everybody, which I guess is 15 years old this year, I said, this thing is going every place that social life helps coordinate human activity, which is to say everywhere. Even with that bit of underwriting, the nature of the changes have been remarkable. When I go back, I went back and looked at Here Comes Everybody about a decade after I wrote it. And the biggest mistake I made 
was not accounting for the social graph. And it's interesting, if you look at the book, I'm more interested in Meetup than Facebook, which is to say I'm more interested in the way that the internet is brokering online and offline conversations than I am in the purely online bit of coordination that Facebook is providing. And the social graph turned out to be a much more powerful determinant of social life than I had imagined. It has some obviously good effects, and in, 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 certainly in terms of sort of global fabric, it's irreplaceable. But it has the bad effect of not allowing groups to have a clear sense of membership. And membership is very often what makes human groups work because it's where the care flows. It's where the sense of this is how we do it around here flows. And the lack of coherent norms has been a big part of the negative effects of social media. And almost all of the negative effects of social media come from places with a social graph in one way or another, not all. 4chan certainly has no social graph, but the kind of the sense that you could be called out by a large group at any time for conversation among a group of or friends or confidants is absolutely part of Facebook's engineering and Facebook's business model. The other thing I got wrong is I didn't understand, basically, I didn't understand how many races there were. Because I'd come of age at a time when the internet was a relatively progressive phenomenon, if only because it attracted people who had an active interest in it. It was never a default for any non-engineer. Even for people of otherwise relatively different political persuasions, there wasn't a lot of race hate relative to other kinds of conversations. If you went on social culture, African-American, there was certainly plenty of racism on Usenet. But it was cloistered in a way, it was contained in a way. And I think for many of us, certainly in the U.S., the shock of the Trump election and the recognition of how deep kind of anti-immigrant fervor was and so on. When I look back at my own writings, I winced because, of course, the coordination costs being lowered means that everybody has more leverage. But then that leverage suddenly goes into isometric competition with each other. There was a whole bit in Here Comes Everybody about the pro-anorexia kids, the people, the girls mostly, essentially posting positive messages about anorexia, which was my example of kind of negative aspects of coordination costs. But that was considerably more contained and subcultural than the kind of xenophobic stuff we've seen arise in, certainly in the U.S. and actually in a number of countries around the world. And then the other thing that I think I really misunderstood was the ability of very large companies to take advantage of internet scale, but within one company, and then to turn it into a value extractive model that made things worse for the users. Cory Doctor has been writing a bunch about this recently, but I think everyone has seen it, right? In the rise of any new service, providing value to the individual user is the only way it can grow. But once it becomes important enough, they start to insert ads in ways that are disruptive or annoying. They sell your data. And the service degradation that comes from that is, is part of the kind of growth hacking mindset we've been in for the last 20 years or so. I remember when the Google file system paper came out and I'd been on a mailing list called decentralization. It was all about sort of ways to use computing fabric spread across the network. And when the Google file system paper came out, I had this sense of vertigo of like, well, this is everything we've been talking about in terms of distributed storage, except one company owns and runs it. If I'd been smart, I would have bought Amazon stock the day they announced Amazon Web Services, because that was basically that logic taken to the whole service offering. 
but I guarded the engineering decentralization and social decentralization is going hand in hand and they don't. You can have engineering decentralization in one company as long as that company is large enough to work at internet scale. Any particular industries or domains that you've been surprised by the rate of adoption? And maybe a better way to ask that question is, for all the, the industries and sectors that are so clearly lagging in terms of technology adoption, adoption of the internet, is regulation the main variable that has slowed that down? How would you think about many of these sectors today that are sort of lagging behind many others? Why is that happening in terms of digital adoption? It's kind of sector by sector because there's so much complexity layered onto one industry versus another. If you look at car sales, right? Why have car sales not been disrupted by the internet? The answer is absolutely the states are regulating the industry because every city has a local car dealer who is one of the leading citizens and who employs a bunch of people with high school educations. And God forbid you be able to buy a car off Ford.com. So those states have just made it illegal to sell cars. In fact, Mississippi just moved all electric vehicles are forcing them to move into the franchise model because they can't tax cars you don't buy in the state. So that is just straight up. There's a regulatory prejudice against direct car sales. And if that were removed, every dealer would start letting you customize and then deliver it to your house. The first of them would move within weeks. Within a year, I assume that that would be done. When you look at the dating market, at the other extreme, what you see is that there has been 25 years of innovation in the dating market and no stable platform, because in a way, that is a market where novelty is part of the offering. And so people who don't like Match try Bumble, and people who don't like Plenty of Fish try Hinge, and whatever, it just keeps moving along. In addition to the sort of neophilia of people interested in those services, there is the kind of this is a dating site for farmers who have a particular set of schedules and constraints. So then there's the sort of niche catering all the way to we have the most profiles and that's what people are looking for. So what you see there, I think, is that no service has ever gotten the kind of network effect. You'd think if there was any service that would get network effects, it would be dating. No service there has gotten the sort of network effects that allows them to then own the whole space, as it were, and be transformative in part because users' impatience with the service, completely unconnected to any regulation, has kept that market from stabilizing. And so it really, there are a whole range of effects. I will say in my own now industry, higher ed, it's been really interesting to me to see the MOOCs launch to just as rapturous a, a reception as you could possibly have. Substantially, everyone not in higher ed rooting for the MOOCs because of frustrations with higher ed as it exists today. And then the MOOCs failing to become degree-granting organizations. And that is a mix of things. It's partly regulatory, right? There are federal regulations that are significant gating effects on the ability of students to get federal student loans and so on. But it was also partly, in this case, weirdly, a misunderstanding on the part of the tech industry of what higher ed does. The people who went to Stanford and ought to know better reconceived of higher ed as an information delivery service, even though they themselves went to an institution that had 
really deep investment in rich student relationships, both between students and faculty and among students and each other. And it was people out of Stanford that reconceived of education as a kind of video delivery tool, which if that was true, YouTube would have been the MOOCs 10 years before the MOOCs were. And that is a mix of regulation. And I think an impatience on the part of the tech industry for anything that involves deep human engagement, right? People want to think that the kinds of relationships that make these services work can be automated away rather than things that the industry themselves has to grapple with. I think it's super instructive that Borders went out of business, but many independent bookstores are thriving because Borders was a soulless book delivery service, whereas independent bookstores are actually places where people gather for other kinds of things than just basically your local warehouse to pick up the most recent blockbuster novel. And that, I think, is going to change. Everyone is focused right now on the tech layoffs as being about Facebook, Amazon, and what have you. But I will tell you, as somebody who's had to compete against those companies for digital talent, the number of people who are now looking for jobs who will end up in jobs outside of the FANG companies and will go to work for banks and media companies and universities and all the rest of it, I think that those people will find jobs very quickly. I think that those jobs won't be at Microsoft and Amazon. And I think that that means that the next phase of the digital transition is really going to be as much about customization, a sector and an institution at a time, as it is about provisioning all the kind of general purpose. This is search. This is the cloud. Here's the internet scale CRM. Now the conversation is really going to be what does this particular company in this particular town need? And I think the freeing up of, it's not always programmers being laid off, of course, but digitally aware employees who have some experience of the large tech companies. I think the cultural transfusion into small and medium-sized businesses is going to be amazing. That's very interesting. So, so you're essentially saying the complexity of the transaction, the economic transaction is the main consideration in terms of how different industries have been digitized, essentially. Right. Although I wouldn't even say it's the economic transaction. Certainly in the dating, if it becomes an economic transaction, it's illegal in 49 states. But it's really the complexity of the human involvement. If I need to buy a colander, I just go on Amazon and buy a colander. I don't need to talk to anybody to buy a colander. Just send me a colander. But if I'm on a dating site, right, which I'm not, I'm married. But I mean, if one is on a dating site, then you do care enormously about that kind of complexity. And that's what has meant that there's never been a sort of stable one size fits all, you know, an Amazon for dating. And then there are places where, I think to your earlier question, there are places where the complexity really is added by government to prevent competition, like the complete failure of the sort of national car sales model. That would be better for almost everybody except for the local Ford dealer and the local tax collector. But between those two groups, they've managed to add enough complexity to that transaction that it's almost impossible to sell someone a car they want from a website. You know, related to this stuff, just would love to hear your thoughts on human technology interaction, really. And it seems to me that there's, or to us, that there is this feedback loop between technology and human response to technology. And number one, how would you characterize that 
feedback loop again between sort of human beings and technology? And then number two, do you think that that feedback loop is different with digital technology versus, let's say, the industrial age? First of all, the, I think the best thing anybody's ever said about that feedback loop is McLuhan, we shape our tools and then and after they shape us. This is actually something I've been thinking a lot about recently. You know, the internet crossed its 50-year birthday, 50th birthday a few years back. Oh, let me just not even hedge this. It's impossible to regulate technology correctly when it's young. It's impossible to know how it will fit into the society it appears in. And there are a bunch of different reasons for that. But the two biggest ones, in my view, are one, when a technology launches, it is almost by definition not very good. It's just barely good enough to do a little bit of what it will eventually do, right? When you look at the first personal computers and the, you know, the first real application, which was the spreadsheet, right? The arrival of VisiCalc and the pulling of the personal computer into corporate computing environments, it could just barely run a spreadsheet. Like that, you know, it's $3,000 device and it was basically making rows and columns. And if you said, basically, that thing is going to shrink down to fit in your pocket and will be the substrate of substantially all social life from everybody who lives more than two miles away from you, it would be like, what are you even talking about? They weren't connected to a corporate land, much less a global public network. The feedback loops are both short and long. There's an immediate adaptation. The iPhone shows up. Everybody recognizes that this is a revolution in in usability, I think what people looking back off don't remember is the app store didn't even exist on the first iPhone. The iPhone with an app store is a hugely different device than the iPhone without an app store. And we now regard that whole ecosystem in retrospect as essentially having been delivered all at the same time. But the app store was a huge, huge change early in the history of the iPhone. The short-term adaptations, in particular when a technology is young, require a much larger change in human behavior to use them than we typically appreciate. I've been doing some research on the early history of the automobile, another technology people did not understand. They assumed that the automobile would replace horses. That would be its principal effect. It was a horseless carriage. No one predicted the invention of the suburbs. No one said, if you can drive, you can change the way housing works. Right, The automobile was thought primarily to have an effect on carriages rather than on the relationship between where you lived and where you worked. You see people groping towards what the technology requires, and very often that groping involves creating new principles ad hoc. The Supreme Court hears a case in the early part of the, in the, early part of the 20th century, the early 1900s. And somebody sues, I think it's New York State, somebody sues New York State, say, you can't keep bicycles and carriages and so forth off of these highways you're building? That's ridiculous. This is literally called a right-of-way. It's sacred in British law for over a thousand years. If it's a road, everybody gets to use it. And this policy says only cars get to use this. And the Supreme Court looked at cars and they looked at the speed the cars are going and the weight of the cars and the safety of the cars. And like, yeah, you're absolutely right about the precedent, but you know what? No horses on the highway. Sorry. Because they just Realize that basically as bad as car safety was, fatalities were going to go up if cars were forced to share the road with horses and bicycles and all the rest of it. And 
you see this over and over again, this idea that the technology got good enough that then humans have to do the rest of the adaptation. I mean, you all are old enough along with me to remember when you were exhorted to save your work constantly, right? And if you didn't, if you if your computer crashed and you didn't save a file, that was on you, right? It was ridiculous. Like I paid for the computer. So it's supposed to be working for me. Why am I doing the saving? But it took such a long time for there to be enough resources that they could add autosave as a feature. Autosave should have been there from the mid-1970s, but of course there was no way to commit the resources to that and have the computer do any of the other things it was supposed to do. And so really two generations of computer users were forced to deal with this gap in what the machine should have done versus what it was capable of doing. The looking at the broad cultural themes of how societies adapt to technologies is I think hugely complicated by the fact that in the first 50 years or so, the first half century, nobody knows what they're for. They try using them for a bunch of things. Alexander Graham Bell famously thought the telephone would beam opera into the hinterlands, like people would tune in and listen to the Met. He wanted to purpose something that was invented, literally invented as, as full duplex point to point. And he wanted to turn it into a broadcast network. Like the guy who invented it doesn't understand the tool. And for a long time, I think the people who think about the future of technology have asked, how do we make our predictions more accurate? And I've come to the conclusion that we can't. You can do a little bit, obviously, but there is not even in theory any way that you could have looked at the internet in 1990 and said, I can correctly regulate this based on first principles. I know what kinds of guardrails society needs and so on. When the web came along, when the smartphone came along, when the wiki came along, technologies at all these various levels of the stack, they were not predictable and they had these unpredictable downstream effects. So I've started to think that the key thing in the relationship between the development of technology and the development of society is not correct prediction, but flexible reaction. That very often we put rules into place that are hard to change when the circumstances change. You see this now with people struggling over CDA 230, the regulation for social media about what they can and can't censor. Everybody understands that that's a really clunky solution, but it's really hard to figure out what the alternative is. And canceling it isn't, once people think about it, canceling it isn't anything people want. If we had a way to adapt piecemeal, and this is true of, I think, of all technologies, if we had a way to adapt regulations piecemeal rather than over-regulating early and then living with this sort of suboptimal fit between the guardrails and the tool, we'd be a lot better off. What do you think is the relationship between technology, software, and change? One of the ideas I run into all the time is, are you talking about a difference of degree or are you talking about a difference in kind? Is this just more of the same or is this a new thing? I think it was Stephen Levy who said of technology, if you make a 10% improvement, that's an improvement. If you make a 10x improvement, that's a new thing. It is perfectly possible, to go back to the iPhone example, it's perfectly possible to say, all of the hardware that the iPhone relied on and all of the interaction patterns that the iPhone relied on already existed and were out in the world. Jeff Hahn was running around giving his multi-touch demo to anybody who would listen for years before that thing drops. And it would be possible if you took that technologically correct point of view to say, and therefore the iPhone represents only a small change 
in the computing ecosystem. And that is completely historically false. It was a lightning strike and everybody recognized it. And I think that, for me, that says that asking if something is a difference in degree or a difference in kind, is it an evolution or revolution, however that thought gets phrased, is the wrong question because it suggests that there are these two buckets and that things in one bucket are just predictable increments and things that in the other bucket are radical jumps in capability. When you look at the actual history of technology, big things are different than small things. Fast things are different than slow things. When you look at networks, dense networks are different than sparse networks. There's no point in trying to find a dividing line in that increment. But what software has done is it has taken every one of those spectrums and it has moved it towards the faster change part of the spectrum. It's easier to get big. It's easier to get big quickly. It's easier to get quick quickly, as it were, to have the kind of sub two second response time that feels like co-presence instead of asynchronous. It's easier for networks to get dense quickly. And importantly, there is this sort of evolutionary change where the internet is the substrate, but then the browser comes along and first it's a piece of software, but then quickly becomes another substrate. And you see the kind of building of the browser ecosystem as essentially its own computing device. And then people build things in the browser, same with the app store. And so software has these two effects. One is it lowers the cost of creating dramatic change. It increases the number of people who can try something new and create dramatic change. And it builds on itself, which is to say every now and again, someone takes a piece of software and launches it. And it turns out to be so fundamental that other people build on top of it. Like if you look at MidJourney, the text-to-image machine learning tool, they could have built a chat interface the way OpenAI did, the way ChatGPT did. But they just use Discord. They're like, why are we going to build a conversational interface when we can just take this tool that does about 80% of what we want already? So you just type your prompt into Discord. And if you don't like it, you just modify it and type it in again. And Discord clearly, in addition to doing whatever it's done for social life, it clearly accelerated the rise of this sort of chat interaction model around these generative tools that's turned out to be the big revolution in usability. That, I think, that capability of software is, I think, underappreciated. The fact that software makes it easier to scale is obviously taken for granted in every, every place people talk about this. But the kind of incremental build or buy decision that would lead a group as technically talented as the group that made mid-journey to say, you know what, we're just going to adopt somebody else's chat interface because we can get everything we need in terms of accepting prompts and producing results and all the rest of it without having to build our own front-end interface. Like that change is just getting started and that's going to be a really big deal. In a sense, the building blocks, which happens on top of each other. And right, leads exactly. To, leads to further innovation. Yeah. And it's hard to know. You would not have looked at Discord even three years ago and said that is a building block. What you would have said is that is a tool for gamers that jailbroke its original use. And now it's being used as a kind of Slack alternative, other kinds of coordinating groups. It's basically anything from your group chat to a sort of simple work tool. But even then, no one would have said that's going to be the interface to a major AI launch. 
and this is one of the things that's just so interesting thinking about the internet is whatever your theoretical grounding, every now and again, stuff just happens like, whoa, I did not see that coming. That is so interesting. And the use of disc for me, the use of Discord as a kind of midway between a graphic user interface and a command line interface, because Discord, I'm sorry, not Discord, but Midjourney requires text input. John Herman, who's, who's one of the great writers about this stuff, once said, the future is always incredibly obvious to someone. And he was writing about Shade Room, which is the first publication to just publish entirely on Instagram, no website at all, why bother? And Herman looked at that and was like, oh, yeah, no, that's obviously right. That was the sense I had looking at Discord and Midjourney of like, oh, right, why would you build a, your own user interface if you could just use this as a building block? Right. And so I guess it's a double-edged sword because it's a building block and at the same time, it's a dependency and that dependency might right. fail. Always, always, always. And that's making it sound like a double-edged sword means like you could choose to not sharpen one of those edges. Like every, <laughs> right, every, every standard is both a, it's a spur to better interact, better coordination, better interactivity, and also an admission that you've run out of steam on innovation. And I've been part of a, a number of standards efforts. The higher ed is just actually recovering from something called the Learning Tools Learning Tools Integration, LTI. And it was absolutely classic. LTI 1.0 was great. People loved it. It was very basic. They wanted it to do more. And there was this huge every bells and whistles effort, LTI 2.0, that just failed because they tried to cram too many things in there and now they've backed off to incremental improvement. This happens to standards efforts all the time. You never get to pull the standard back in and retool from scratch. Any mistake you make on day one is probably going to stay there forever. It's the double-edged sword of standardization. Yeah, that's fascinating. All right, let's talk about something that I think you're living through as we as we speak, which is Sort of the intersection of generative AI and education, and yeah. in particular, I'd like to talk about formulating questions. Like, what are the important questions to consider? Let's forget answers for a second, but what are the important questions to consider in this specific case of using AI tools in the classroom? And we can focus on university model because you know that best. Yeah, and the university model. I think everybody zoomed in on that when ChatGPT launched, in particular because we are uniquely dependent on writing as an assessment tool rather than as a production tool, which is to say the generative tools that generate images or animation or 3D models or what have you, those show up in classrooms where those kinds of production are relevant. But if you want to know what is common to a class taught by a choreographer, a biologist, and a sociologist, the idea that students will do some writing to show the faculty member that they have absorbed and can now work with the ideas of the class, that is ubiquitous in higher ed. And so a generative tool for a well-written paragraph has a different relationship to the institution than any other kind of media. People very quickly zoomed in on the academic integrity issues, of course, generating an, an essay and turning it in as your own and passing the class based on no work. And I've run into a couple of facts. You're like, oh, yeah, I looked at what the tool can do in my domain. It's like a B minus C plus paper. I don't see what the big deal is. And of course, the big deal is B minus to C plus is a passing grade. 
that the faculty, as they always do, are concentrating on who are the students who are most capable in the class, who are the students basically who are likely to go into this as a field. But the threat is that a student who checks out of the class and just wants a passing grade can now do so with zero learning at all, rather than the C plus level of learning. But what's become very quickly interesting in the conversation is once you take it for granted that there are academic integrity issues, and you take it for granted that this tool is never going away, like the pocket calculator at Wikipedia, once it arrived, it was just always going to be around. What's the right way to integrate these tools into the classroom? Many faculty members are now thinking about upstream uses of these tools. I'm going to use ChatGPT to generate an essay, and then every student's assignment is to edit it so that their edit to me plus their thoughts about the editing become what I assess them on. And that can help students see the difference in style and tone. If everybody starts from the same place but ends up with a different essay, then you have a way to talk about the idea of voice or diction or some of the sort of higher order things people care about with writing. You can have ChatGPT generate, and I say ChatGPT for the whole family of large language models, whether it's ChatGPT or Lambda or whatever it is. You can have it generate pro and con arguments and then have the students say which argument they think is stronger and why. And almost all of this stuff engages metacognition, which is to say thinking about the kind of thinking that goes into the writing. The people, I will say, at NYU who are the most excited about ChatGPT are the people who are responsible for improving pedagogy. They're the people who faculty come and say, can you come observe my class and give me some tips? Or can you help me design this course or whatever? Because this really makes it clear that the only way we get out of this problem without just having, a, having it settle into it, this is the new essay generating tool is if faculty engage with their students about what the goals of learning are and about how you get there. The conversation, certainly at least at NYU, is very quickly turned from academic integrity. It's a thorny set of issues, but it's not conceptually hard. It's just, it's cheating if you turn in writing that isn't actually yours and say that it is. And it actually turns it into, how do we have a conversation with the students about the goals of the class? And within that conversation, how do we then talk about where it's appropriate to use these tools or not? That's the short-term change. The longer term change, which is, I think, as interesting to me, but hasn't yet, isn't yet fully clear, is what world are students graduating into with respect to writing? Because when you look around at the kind of writing you have access to, and you stop segregating it into books and magazines versus everything else, and you just say, literally, where is there a sentence? There are sentences in real estate listings. There are sentences on cereal boxes. There are sentences on the, on the back of your pill bottle. Most written communication is utilitarian. It is not high style. It is not trying to grapple with hard ideas. It's telling you, don't cross the street. It's telling you, if you touch the third rail, you will be electrocuted. And all of those kinds of things have to be produced. And I got an early preview into this just by accident. I was out in Bay Ridge and I was sitting in a coffee shop and right next to me, two real estate guys were talking to each other. And one of them was trying to sell the other on chat GPT. This thing had been out like 15 days at this point. It's like, yeah. dude, you've got to use it. Like I use it to write real estate listings. Like how often <laughs> can you type the phrase spacious, airy kitchen or whatever without getting bored? Like real estate brokers mostly don't care about writing the sentences that go into real estate listings. There's a lot of other stuff that they're more interested in and more engaged in. And I'm in a world where 
all writing has the aura of the sacred about it. Like even policy memos around here get really heavily edited. And if you get a complaint from someone, it's likely to be super detailed and very carefully worked on. It isn't just this doesn't work or this is broken or whatever you But we're an absolute outlier. Now. Most writing produced by most professionals in most settings is just, I just need people to understand, you know, don't touch the third rail. This is a two for one sale, whatever. I think the much bigger question for universities or the much longer term question, maybe let's say, is how much of a premium will there be in the outside world for human produced sentences five years from now? And the answer is less, but we don't know how much less. And this is, I think, that students will quite reasonably say, for what am I being trained if all written conversation is part human and part AI, why am I being trained in an AI-free mode of writing in the universe? And in some cases, the answer will be writing at a certain level of excellence is still going to require this old-style human production and editing. But if the students are going into a business where the volume of writing isn't all meant to be deathless prose for the ages, but it's just meant to do something, including legal briefs, frankly consulting documents, all the rest of the kind of like, this has high temporary value. If the large language models pan out in the way that they're pointing to now, we will end up rethinking instruction for writing in the university simply to be somewhat in sync with the world. There's this core tension between developing human capital, which is a student, and then assessing, assessing basically how well that student performed. Yes. And that core tension, interestingly, has been part of the university system for as long as there have been universities, which is to say going on now a thousand years. There have been constant complaints, and I mean constant, starting with the Catholic Church who sponsored the first universities, that the university graduates were not trained on the kind of materials that they, the Catholic Church, needed them to know when they hired them. And you read these complaints about like students graduate from college and they're not able to do this stuff in the workforce as if this is something that's recently happened. It's like, no, no, it's been like this for a thousand years that there is a weird, whatever, there's a weird historical fact that the kinds of things that you train the students on don't have to be the kinds of materials they work with in their subsequent jobs. When someone studies history and then goes into business, you can think of all kinds of ways that being aware of historical precedents might be valuable to them, but they do not look up primary sources when they are making business decisions. And so this tension between how much should higher ed reflect the world of work that most of the students will go into versus how much is higher ed a relatively closed system of academic achievement that creates these kind of downstream values for the world. That debate is constant. And interestingly, we know of failure cases at both ends. You can become so ethereal and academic that you just can't deal with the real world. And you can become so obsessively concerned about what employers currently want that you create an education that has entirely short-term goals. And if the world changes, the student has a hard time to hard time adapting. So we're constantly in this trade-off. And in the short run, faculty win. We tell the students what to do. But in the long term, the students win. If the students want an education that includes learning how to use AI tools, well, they will get it. 
and they will get it because they will start to tell each other which colleges are doing that well. And the admission cycles will move. And when the admission cycles move, the colleges on the losing end of that transaction change the way they do business. Related to this, how do you think university model of learning will co-evolve with the growth of digital technologies? I mean, look, it's amazing. Even now, we don't know the effects of COVID on individual institutions, but the staggering shift to acceptance of online education could not have been engineered in any other way. It was growing gradually. The curve was up every year, one over the next. But there was never any hockey stick. This was not that kind of adoption. This was really a couple more state schools are offering a couple more degrees. And so the student population goes up and so forth and so on. And interestingly, it was going up in roughly the same population increment year after year, which is to say the percentage growth was slowing prior to COVID. A lot of that was just generalized institutional resistance. It's gone. Whatever else both administrations and faculties think about online education, the idea that you can't educate students in that way, you can no longer get an argument going around that. There are places, University of California, just the UC system, the universities in the system just banned online undergraduate degrees because they're worried about it. But interestingly, they had to ban them because they recognized that that the online classes were being offered and the students were demanding. So they're actually now in a rear guard action against their own tuition paying students who want greater flexibility. And again, in the short term, California can ban whatever it likes. In the long term, flexibility wins out. So a little bit at a time, higher education now reforms itself around a mix of in-person online classes. My guess is that most schools are going to stop thinking of wholly online degrees as a separate entity and simply think of it as the endpoint on a spectrum of student choice. That if I come in and I take no online classes or I take 8% online classes or 72% of online classes or 100% of online classes, whatever, I just got through, I got the degree, I did the work. It's much more important to know, is a student physically on the campus? Which is to say, can the student services that we offer on campus reach the student or are they only going to take advantage of the services we offer online? That's much more important to know than whether or not the student plans to get their degree entirely online or not. That change, this is one of the rare instances in higher ed where practice has outrun theory by decades. I mean, it would have taken us until the, at the rate we were growing, it would have taken us until I think the late 2030s to get to the degree of online education we got to in 2020 over the span of about 12 weeks. And now coming out of that, people are shocked to realize, oh yeah, we can't pretend that we can't do that anymore. There's still some resistance. <laughs> but by and large, schools are now pushing to adopt it. And as with things like the shift to admitting women into in, American colleges, the most prestigious schools will go last. That by and large, the co-education was how higher education worked up in, by the 1960s. And it was the Ivy League that were the last to go. And they present this as a great moral victory or whatever. In fact, the truth was students started applying to the university or started attending the University of Chicago instead of Harvard. And Harvard is like, well, you know, what would make you change your mind? And they said, no education. So Harvard was forced to do it, although they present this as this kind of, again, this, this sort of moral engagement. 
Same thing here, that many press releases will be written about how in innovative some college or others online program is, when in fact, they're just responding to consumer demand, but they can't say that because that seems too businesslike. Follow the incentive. Right, exactly. Follow leads, the incentive. Leads to, leads to a lot of truth. I believe you've either quoted or you've said in a video somewhere online that it is momentous for a culture when a new form of arguing emerges. You say trial by jury, voting, yep. peer review, and now distributed version control. Why is distributed version control important? And second part to that question is, what are some promising and potentially interesting applications of distributed version control that have yet to be explored in a meaningful way. I did say that, and I said that I was riffing off the T.S. Eliot quote, who said it's momentous when a new style of prose arises, which I think actually is less true, but I think arguing has a special place in human societies. And when people come to agree that there's a way of creating value or settling arguments or what have you that they will accept, like voting or peer review, it changes the way that society works. I would put Wikipedia not as a new, wikis not as a new form, but it basically is a radical expansion of, of the idea of peer review. Distributed version control is different than peer review because of the compiler, as it were. The famous, we don't believe in kings of democracy, we believe in rough consensus and running code mantra of the Internet Engineering Task Force says basically reality gets a veto. You can tell me that something is going to be great, but if it's if you write the code and it's not performant, we're not putting it in the kernel. Don't care how what a good idea it's in. This is roughly the argument between, oh, I forget the guy, the Minix guy, but it's basically roughly the argument between compiler-specific optimizations versus the idea of the microkernel in the Linux versus Minix debate. Every theoretician was on the sort of microkernels of the way to go, and Linus is like, no, just optimize with the chip. It's annoying, but you get way better performance. It just wasn't, Linus's half of that debate wasn't even theoretical. It's just look at the benchmark. Distributed version control is a way of looking at alternatives that have practical value. And the fact that the compiler gets a vote is, I think, what makes it different. When I gave that talk, the thing I, I, I was most optimistic about, it's proven harder in theory, but I'm still optimistic about it is legal systems. In theory, a legal system, any new law is supposed to be compatible with existing laws or to specifically invalidate them in the text. In practice, as anyone who's watched a complicated legal case unfold, there are all kinds of conflicting precedents and people don't really know how to interpret them. And basically the U.S.'s answer has been, oh, kick it to the appellate courts. If you, you know, you can't settle it here. And then the appellate court's like, we don't know, make the Supreme Court decide. I think it was Posner who pointed out, the great uh, pragmatist legal scholar who pointed out that if a case gets to the Supreme Court, there better not be a right answer. Because if there was a right answer, why didn't the rest of the court system come to it? Like the Supreme Court should only weigh in when there is something significant at stake and there are conflicting principles that haven't been worked out. Is Bitcoin potentially one of the most beautiful examples of distributed version control? I mean, I, I go back and forth. So the, the problem with Bitcoin is <laughs> technically so beautiful. That math is incredible. And also it's the world's slowest computer. I mean, this is the Minix versus chip optimization debate. What it does, it doesn't do 
fast enough to scale given the transactions. Nobody's ever solved the intrinsic versus exchange value question, which is why the price is all over the map. Sometimes it's it's sold as currency plainly, but it's it works like a commodity. You know, I think Ethereum has the better model, which is to say more programmable. But I will also say back to the earliest conversation about the humanities, there is no way to perfectly specify human relations in advance. Many people have wanted a world in which the contract is all you need and all of the interpretation is blown away because the contract encapsulates everything important. The minute people started figuring out basically wallet draining hacks, the one answer is, well, look, if the software allowed it, then obviously the transaction is legitimate. Almost by definition in the sort of purest, the contract is all you need definition. If someone did something with the contract, then that was allowed behavior. And then every bit of human concern about unfairness and about needing to police large social aggregates kicks in. It's like, no, no, I got my money stolen. Somebody should call a cop. And suddenly the coplessness of a blockchain starts to seem like a disadvantage rather than an advantage. I think right now the sort of the, the observation that these tools are mostly used for criminal activity, it's whatever, it's true enough, but it's also very often criminals are rushing in where they need a service uh, that's not available in the legal market. But that is also a potential indicator of demand. So I had friends yeah. who, so we lived in Shanghai for several years, and I had friends who used Bitcoin to route around the difficulty of moving money from one country to another. The Chinese make it famously difficult to use American credit cards or to expatriate money. And it was just, you could buy Bitcoin with Yuan and sell Bitcoin for dollars, and suddenly you had exchange rates. And how you felt about that really, really came down, not to anything about the technology, but how you felt about the Chinese government's choices in regulating their currency. If you approved yeah. of not having an official exchange rate, or not an exchange rate, but the currency not being tradable, then you dislike Bitcoin. And if you needed to exchange it, then you like Bitcoin. So much of the speculation was around the value of the coin itself rather than its transactional capabilities. I'm interested to see in the middle of this blockchain winter if some of those kind of cross-border remittances business models come back to the fore, but you know, I don't know. So we'll start with our outro section. What motivates you? Seeing what's next. Which not consensus views do you hold near and dear? All models are wrong, but some models are useful. What or who has had the most impact on your thinking, career, or life? On my thinking, probably Yokai. Yokai Beckler. Okay. What are you currently reading? I'm currently reading a bunch of books about Agile and about running IT departments. A couple decades after that revolution, I was curious to see what practice looks like. Who are your favorite writers or podcasters? I'm reading a lot of Bob Lewis right now for the reason I just mentioned, who's a great writer about IT, which is a hard subject to be a great writer on. I have always admired and consumed Dana Boyd, Zainab Dufeshi, David Weinberger, and Yokai, as I mentioned earlier. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, Visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at luminaryfm. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review, and share with friends. 
don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization, company or management they may be associated with. And thank you for listening.